Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. I have to say that when I learned that this was one person, I was a little flabbergasted. I really was because these artists, yes, they're all around the same period, but their styles are very, very different. And he did a good job. I mean, there are other fakes in art history and as I used to like to joke when I gave talks, the best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know, they don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. By 2002, an unlikely trio of con artists had grown rich from their forgery scheme. Glafira Rosales had worked her charms and unearthed a dazzling collection of abstract expressionist paintings destined for Anne Friedman to acquire for the Knoedler Gallery. Anne convinced herself that the works were genuine. She was desperate to squeeze every dollar of profit she could from the mysterious works, works that had no provenance. Anne had bought the paintings for unthinkably low prices and sold them at sky-high markups. The profit margin was so high that the Nodler had come to rely on the Mr. X Jr. collection for its very survival. Meanwhile, the fraudsters were living the American dream. Carlos Bergantinos, the ideas man, Patient Quan, the artist, and Glafira Rosales, the resourceful salesperson, had executed a scheme that was paying enormous dividends. Along with rising profits, however, came increased risk. By 2002, Jack and Fran Levy had spent upwards of $4.3 million acquiring masterworks from Nodler. The biggest prize was a $2 million Jackson Pollock, identified simply as Untitled 1949. It had a greenish cast and measured 12 by 18 inches. It was small for a Pollock, but impressive all the same. Before the sale could be finalized, however, Jack Levy insisted that the Pollock be vetted by IFAR, the International Foundation for Art Research. Up to this point, none 
of the works brought in by Glafira Rosales had been subjected to forensic scrutiny. Anne Friedman was so convinced of the work's authenticity that she readily agreed to the Levy's terms. The work was already owned by Jack Levy, so Nodler was not, quote, the client or the person who submitted the work to IFAR. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the field about that. I am Sharon Flesher. I'm executive director of the International Foundation for Art Research, which is much better known under the acronym IFAR. IFAR's experts provide a thorough and impartial analysis of visual works of art through provenance research and forensic testing. IFAR is also well known for their pioneering work in art theft, having created the first database of stolen art. I spoke with Sharon in her corner office overlooking the New York Public Library. IFAR, now a 50-year-old institution, works with researchers and forensics experts to help authenticate artwork submitted from all over the world. Jack Levy purchased his Pollock from the Nodler with no inkling that it might be fake. Signing up for an IFAR analysis was a mere legal nicety, or so he thought. Despite the many Pollocks that came through IFAR, Sharon too had no doubts that the Levy Pollock would prove to be right. My initial assumption was, of course, this would be great. We're going to find a new Pollock because it, would, it never entered my mind that a work that wouldn't be good would have been sold through the Nodler Gallery. Sharon was unaware of the deal Jack Levy had struck with Anne Friedman and Nodler, but to her, having the sale of the Pollock be contingent upon IFAR's determination of authenticity made a lot of sense. My logic said to me that someone who purchases a seven-figure work from a reputable gallery, if the work turns out not to be what that person hopes and expects it to be, that they will turn right around to the gallery and try to get their money back. Usually, when a buyer asks a gallery for their money back, the gallery writes them a check instantly, as a matter of course. Reputations, after all, are at stake. But what if the gallery insists the painting is real and refuses to give the buyer their money back? Acting on her gut, Sharon took an extra measure to protect herself and IFAR. I insisted that the Nodler Gallery sign an agreement saying they would not sue because there would be nothing protecting us because if we didn't come up with the positive review, I assumed we would, I could just see exactly what would happen. It would be returned, he'd get the money back, and then the gallery would say, well, how can you prove that it's not? You're defaming our name, our character, whatever. It was just a vision I had. And so I insisted that they sign something, and they did. IFAR began working on the Levy Pollock using the same methods they would apply to any painting submitted for authenticity. There are some steps that are consistent for every painting, and then each project takes on a slight life of its own. So we are very committed in general to what I like to think of as a three-pronged process, which is scholarly research, connoisseurship, the expert eyes. We had actually quite a few specialists who examined this work, in some cases more than once, and the physical properties of the work. 
which sometimes includes a detailed lab examination, forensic examination. Right away, the scholarly research aspect of IFAR's work turned up red flags. For starters, the painting's lack of provenance was a problem for Sharon. We were sent the skimpiest possible provenance information that one can be sent for a work that is of a major artist and of seven-figure value. <laughs> Essentially nothing. And I actually personally called Anne. I knew Anne and called her to give them the benefit of the doubt, saying we can be more helpful on this project if you supply more information to us. And at that time, she actually said, you're researching the provenance? And I said, of course, we always research the provenance. What did you think? And she said, I thought you would just bring experts together to look at the work and say whether it was good. I said, we're doing that as well, but of course we research the provenance. Anne was in a predicament. IFAR's work was thorough and consistent. And because Jack Levy had officially submitted the work to IFAR, not Nodler, there was nothing Anne could do to finesse her way out of the problem sitting on Sharon's desk. The deeper IFAR dug into the history of the Levy Pollock, the more nervous Anne seemed to become. For Sharon, the backstory just wasn't adding up. It was just simply said and relayed to us. It was acquired through Osorio. This was it. The Osorio story, conjured up by Glafira Rosales, had now made its way through Anne Friedman to Sharon and Ifar. Alfonso Osorio had died, but his longtime partner Ted Dragon was still alive. So I contacted Dragon simply to find out after he lived with Osorio for many years. Could he provide information? Is he familiar with this work? Is he aware of Osorio ever having dealt with it? And what was Ted Dragon's reaction? He had never seen the work. He didn't think there was any connection whatsoever to Osorio because had there been, given his intimate relationship with Osorio over so many years, and particularly at that period, that he would have known if there was a connection. And we did other research as well, and we could find nothing to substantiate the Osorio connection. The Osorio provenance was crumbling under scrutiny from IFAR. The whole notion of Osorio serving as a middleman between dealers and artists went nowhere. But what about the painting itself? This particular work was canvas mounted on masonite, which is a type of fiberboard. Pollock did have canvases mounted on masonite. In this case, it was mounted on the rough side of the masonite. Most of the ones of his that were mounted were mounted on the smooth side of the masonite. But he also painted directly on masonite. I can tell you that one of the specialists who examined this work immediately was upset. They felt that it was mounted on that masonite just so that we couldn't see the back of the canvas. <laughs> That's why they're doing it, you know, to hide this. I put here on the cover a detail of the painting. Sharon was showing me the cover of one of IFAR's publications from 2016 
titled 2020 Hindsight, Lessons from the Nodler-Rosales Affair. On the cover are two rectangular photos of Jackson Pollock's signatures on paintings. Red arrows indicate that one is an actual Pollock, the other a fake. The photos are zoomed in to show the detail of the signature itself and the canvas. Here's a signature, Jackson Pollock 49, that's signed on that painting. And this is the bottom you can see here. Here's the canvas, and here's the masonite. When Pollock did it, first of all, he did it on the other side of the masonite, on the smooth side, and he put some sizing on it. And over the 50-year period from 1949 to 2000, the masonite with his sizing had aged and colored completely differently than the masonite in this work. How interesting. Wow. So you really had, there was maybe a first red flag for sure. It was more than a first red flag. We already had some red flags. As I said earlier, not just the provenance, any connection whatsoever to Pollock. Are there photo archives that show this work in the background? Are there letters that mention a work that fits this description? We did all of that. These were the kind of telltale details that led IFAR to issue its shocking opinion. We said we cannot accept the work as a work by Jackson Pollock. It is the same as saying, I'm writing a catalog raisonné and I'm not including your work in the catalog raisonné. We couched our words because we couldn't hammer that nail in the coffin absolutely. Anne was pretty ticked, was she not? Did she not speak publicly and disparage IFAR? And she certainly spoke privately and disparaged us to people because it got back to me all the time. Years later, when she felt free to talk about the Levy Pollock and IFAR's rejection of it, Anne would blithely say, quote, there was a recent history of bad feelings between IFAR and Nodler, unquote. IFAR's experts were biased, Anne implied. That was why IFAR had nixed the painting. Where I felt she impugned our integrity by saying there was a history of bad feelings, therefore she wanted to dismiss what we said. First of all, there was no history of bad feelings that I knew of, and certainly not during my tenure, and I had already been here a few years. But more importantly, to assert that even if there were bad feelings, it might change our report I was incredulous that anyone would make such a statement because we only exist because of our good name and our reputation for integrity. We're not going to sully it, and I'm not going to let anyone else sully it. With IFAR's final judgment on the Levy Pollock in 2003, Anne took the painting back very discreetly. She returned the $2 million to Jack Levy. Contractually, she had no choice. Shortly after the sale was refunded, Anne called a Canadian collector, David Mervish, with news that she had a wonderful deal for him. Anne was absolutely sure, she said, that IFAR had been wrong and that the painting was legitimate. To back up her claim, Anne suggested that she herself buy a one-third interest in Untitled 1949. The gallery would buy a partial share, as would Mervish. Certainly, they would sell the painting at some point for a fortune. Mervish agreed, 
and untitled 1949 was duly put aside for that future day, its IFAR status kept quiet. But the damage was done. As Anne later said in Vanity Fair, quote, it was a backfire because Ted Dragon went crazy. Osorio would never have hidden anything from me, unquote. That cast a pall over the painting and the whole story of Osorio as middleman for Mr. and Mrs. X. Anne asked Glafira, could Mr. and Mrs. X have been wrong? Had they or their son confused Osorio with someone else? Glafira promised to address the issue and then came back with a change in the story. More in a minute. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. As it turned out, Anne was right. Osorio had been in the mix, but only marginally so. Glafira said the dealer who had handled most of those paintings for Mr. and Mrs. X was actually an art handler named David Herbert. She was so sorry for any confusion. This is one of those 
iffy moments in the story where you raise not one but two eyebrows and think, wait a minute, how were you not suspicious when the entire backstory suddenly shifted? That's author Maria Konnikova again. It shows a few things. The part of the con artists, obviously, it shows great ingenuity and once again, listening, because Anne inadvertently told them what to say, because she said, these are the holes, these are the things that people are suspicious of. And she even had suggestions, right? Maybe was it this, was it that? So she threw out things that they could then use. Once again, the con artists here, your job is to listen and to figure out, okay, what do I need to change? What are they reacting to? What's working? What's not working? David Herbert, working, wonderful. Let's keep him in and try to figure out, you know, how how we can change the story to the elements that aren't working to fill in the parts of the narrative that are causing us problems. Now, The other element, of course, is if you're Anne, how in the world do you not see this? One of the things that I've argued over and over again is that it's impossible to judge from the outside because from the outside, you're objective. From the inside, once you're already in the middle of it, once you're already emotionally involved, your objectivity is gone. It's really difficult. It takes a very specific strong person who probably would not have gotten into this situation to begin with to be able to see clearly in the heat of the moment. And most people just cannot do that. I think that she was already so deep in the con that it didn't strike her as weird. It just struck her as, we're getting more information. It's on a need-to-know basis. As I need to know more, they they tell me more. Whereas for us, when we're looking at this, we're shaking our heads and thinking, wait, no, no, you're not allowed to change the story. If you're Anne, you're thinking, oh, okay, that makes sense. Great, wonderful. David Herbert, now the key figure in the backstory, was a brilliant choice. He was a real person whose modest life and times fit the larger story, a dealer many in the art world had known. Almost certainly Anne had heard about Herbert through Jaime Andrade, since Herbert had been Andrade's best friend for decades. Also convenient, David Herbert had died just seven years prior in 1995. His executor? None other than Jaime Andrade. Into Andrade's hands went all of Herbert's files upon his death. Possibly those files contained bits that might embellish Glafira's story of Mr. and Mrs. X. From what Anne now understood, David Herbert had been more than a middleman between downtown artists and Mr. X setting up sales and taking commissions. Herbert had been Mr. X's lover during long periods in the 1950s in New York. Once again, for Anne, the result was the opportunity to access newly discovered masterpieces. One key link between David Herbert and the art world he inhabited was the legendary dealer Sidney Janis. After a humble start in the garment industry, Janis had made his fortune by inventing a two-pocket men's Oxford shirt. His true passion, however, was contemporary art. That led him to become a dealer, eventually representing many of the mid-century greats. In 1948, he opened a fifth-floor gallery on 57th Street, 
down the hall from another emerging and important dealer, Betty Parsons. Much to Parsons' indignation, by 1952, some of her top artists had left her stable and moved down the hall to Sidney Janis. She was more of an artist than a, than a dealer. She couldn't quite sell any of the works of the artists. That was the problem. That's Carol Janis, one of Sidney Janis's two sons who worked in the gallery with his father for years. One of the artists who came down the hall from Betty Parsons was Jackson Pollock. Carol's father liked Pollock's work. He was also sympathetic to the struggles that came with being an artist. He bought a little painting from him during that year, in 44. He told me that he bought it because Pollock was so poor that he just felt that he should buy something. To Betty Parsons' lifelong fury, Pollock would move to the Sidney Janis Gallery for the remainder of his career. Mark Rothko came down the hall, too, after issuing a modest plea. He told Sidney Janis that he had to earn $7,500 a year to support his family. Could the Janis Gallery promise him that much? Janis thought it was possible. In the first year, he made $15,000. Wow. And he was in seventh heaven. That was big money in 1952, over $150,000 today. Most downtown artists survived on a lot less. Some so strapped that they sold paintings out of the back door, as it were, privately, without the involvement of their dealer. That was how David Herbert played into the story. Herbert was no figment of Anne Friedman's imagination. He was an art insider who, at different times in the 1950s, worked for both Betty Parsons and Carol's father, Sidney Janis. Herbert brought clients to various artist studios, introduced those clients to the artists, and handled the occasional backdoor selling of paintings to help them scrape by in tough times. He was about 5'9". I think he had a little mustache. He worked with Betty for a couple of years, I suppose, partly as an art handler and partly to talk to clients coming in. He was not very successful with Betty. But Betty came over and somehow talked my dad into giving him a job, which he did give him. He was also gregarious and liked to talk to the clients. Then what he started to do was to take clients to artist studios and try to sell them works out of the studios. At first, Sidney Janis didn't mind. It was something he was doing, and as long as he was doing it with any of the hundreds of artists in New York who were not with the gallery, ah. my dad didn't say anything. Unfortunately, David Herbert's eagerness to help these far-flung artists, and perhaps to profit from them, led to a bad end. Carol recalls Herbert handling money for one very important artist who was, in fact, a Janus artist, Willem de Kooning. De Kooning came to Dad and asked him for an advance for his studio. Dad gave him what he asked for, $50,000. Then the next year he came and he asked again for another 50000 And then that was quite a lot in those days. He told him no, he wouldn't lend it to him. So that meant Kooning had to start selling out of his studio because he needed the money to pay for the uh, gallery. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, oh, and the studio, right, yeah. Handle that directly, because he loved the Kooning, and the Kooning loved the gallery. But now they were at odds because he was selling out of the studio, but not giving the gallery its commission. And David Herbert was in the thick of it, paying de Kooning for works the painter was selling for money he desperately needed. Herbert had to go. So when my dad found out about that, he, well, he, he let him go immediately. It was easy to imagine how Anne Friedman could have believed the story of a feckless art handler who bought and sold works on his own. By the 1970s and 80s, almost everyone in the art world knew of David Herbert. He remained a droll character from the same demimonde as Alfonso Osorio and Jaime Andrade. Painter Bill Draper would give two-day parties, as one dealer says, and Herbert would be there, along with his dear friends Jaime Andrade and Richard Brown Baker. There, too, would be Brooke Astor, Mayor John Lindsay, and art maven Marion Javits. It was an indulgent and freer time. By then, Herbert had begun to struggle. He threw in with the distinguished dealer Richard Feigen for a short-lived venture. No managerial skills at all, Feigen later grumbled. Despite his lack of funds, Herbert never lost his sense of humor. He would come into the Nodler and pretend he was a collector, it calls a Nodler staffer. Herbert would say, I'm furious that Nodler has not delivered my art for three months. I've been calling, I've paid for it already, unquote. He was funny, says the staffer. By the time David Herbert died, in 1995, he'd become almost destitute. He had a very hard last couple of years, recalls a friend from his gallery. He was basically living on friends and really had no retirement money. As long as David Herbert was alive, these paintings weren't going to come out, and Friedman said in Vanity Fair, quote, The fear was that if the paintings came out while Herbert was alive, Herbert might have been extremely upset, and he might have revealed the identity of the owner. There's no question that the paintings would have been paid for with cash, taxes not paid, assets not declared, and you can go to jail for that, end quote. So sure was Anne about the newly modified backstory that she even gave a new name to the paintings coming from Glyphera Rosales. The paintings, she said, now constituted the David Herbert collection. Once David Herbert passed away, Anne said, that's when Mr. X Jr. felt he could release these paintings. More than one Nodler staffer saw a victim in retrospect, Jaime Andrade. Perhaps Andrade had told Anne stories of his old friend David Herbert. Maybe he had acknowledged that Herbert might have sold some of these paintings on the sly. Still, if he had colluded with Anne and Glyphera, where was the profit in it for him? Jaime did not profit from it. He never got a commission, so there's nothing on him, says an ex-Nodler staffer. He was horrified by all that happened, the staffer adds. I feel very sorry for him. He's a gentleman of the older kind. And now all Andrade had was a ghostly, cobwebbed apartment filled with South American art next door to the gallery he'd loved so much. As for David Herbert, he too seemed a victim, even if a posthumous one. It's very easy to put something on him because he's not around to dispute it, said Herbert's friend from the gallery. 
What should have been early red flags at the Nodler Gallery, those early Diebenkorn drawings, that brilliant Rothko, and now the returned Levy Pollock instead remained art world secrets for now. None of them stirred any attention because sales of the works remained confidential. As it turned out, the Levy Pollock that Ifar had judged to be not a legitimate work was actually one of several Pollocks that Anne Friedman would eventually snatch up from Glafira Rosales. More art fraud in a minute. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything, for every passenger, feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. No one knew the true story of the Nodler Gallery's finances. Later, when the gallery's money manager testified at trial, he would say that the paintings of the David Herbert collection were not merely helpful to the gallery's bottom line, they were essential. Without those sales, the Nodler would have been losing big money by 2004. Thanks to Glafira's paintings, the Nodler was at least getting by. 
Joe Stevens, the notary's long-serving art handler, sensed the true state of the gallery when he was abruptly fired after nearly 45 years on the job. My heart and soul was in that place. I loved working there, and I was good at it. To be honest, I wanted to kill her. I hated her guts, and I don't hate anybody. But she made life miserable for me and the girls by keeping him there every day. She walked three blocks and she's home. I think she knew that I knew things were going on. That's probably why I got dumped. I don't know for sure. Can we put it that way as your suspicion? Yeah, yeah. Anne was now squarely focused on selling works from the David Herbert collection. And that was becoming a very dangerous enterprise. By 2005, the contemporary art market had soared, thanks to a five-fold increase in new billionaires since the 1980s. And the billionaires loved contemporary art. They loved the status it conferred, too. Most of all, they loved the profits many contemporary artists were generating. The new meme was art as an asset. The market was now more than a place to buy and sell art. It was a lifestyle. Wealthy collectors jetted to art fairs around the world, greeting each other like old friends. They attended glittering parties held by the biggest and most powerful dealers at the Venice Biennale, at Art Basel in Switzerland, and at the Freeze Fairs in London, LA, and New York. Entree to the club didn't require old money or expertise in art, not anymore. All you needed to join the club was money and a willingness to spend it. Art has become the status symbol, as dealer Gavin Brown put it, the lingua franca of the wealthy. At some point in the early 2000s, Glathira and Carlos attempted to open their own gallery in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. It was a loft on 19th Street. Carlos called it King's Fine Art. Records suggest he staged exactly one opening, a trio of Cuban-American artists who went nowhere. Lafira found the gallery ridiculous. You know, he was a show-off, and he wants to <laughs> presume that uh, he was a businessman, of course. Did you work with him at that gallery or no? Yeah, well, not really. Like I say, it was occasionally, in, in, and he was the one who was putting it together. The Chelsea loft that Carlos opened was a Bush League effort to join the art market in earnest. Serious dealers, those who, for starters, dealt in authentic art, were in a whole other world, one that Carlos and Glafira could only dream of. By now, the best abstract expressionist works were all but impossible to acquire, unless you were willing to pay stratospheric prices. Hedge fund manager Ken Griffin would become famous for buying a de Kooning and a Pollock in a package deal for $500 million. With all this frenzy, the contemporary art market rose from roughly 20 billion in 2000 to 63 billion in 2008. In the midst of this hyperactive market, Anne had begun publicly showcasing works from the David Herbert collection. The mecca for New York art dealers was the annual Armory Show, hosted by the Art Dealers Association of America, or ADAA. The Park Avenue Armory is a vast, high-vaulted space that once sheltered Union military troops and their horses. 
Any dealer worth their salt was compelled to rent a booth at the Armory show. Seemingly confident that her latest works from the David Herbert collection were genuine, Anne began displaying the paintings at each ADAA show. Every time we got a painting from Glafira, we'd hang it in the Nodler's booth at the Armory, Anne later told Vanity Fair. Had anyone found anything wrong, she noted, believe me, I would have been told, take that down off the wall. She would never take more than one of those to the Armory show, notes one ex-staffer. It might be flanked by a great Milton Avery landscape or maybe a Robert Motherwell, so it was surrounded by the creme de la creme with impeccable provenance. It wasn't some podunk Pollock. Another ex-staffer rolls his eyes at that. There was either a Pollock or a Newman on display at the Nodler booth, the staffer recalls of one year's display. People began whispering, you have to go look, but don't say anything. Everyone knew it was fake. Everyone was laughing about it. But as Patricia Cohen of the New York Times notes, they were all instructed by lawyers not to say anything. Why? The fear of being sued. As those brilliant but baffling works kept popping up, Friedman's fellow dealers made a blood sport of speculating about which, if any, of the paintings in the David Herbert collection were real. And why did Anne Friedman keep promoting pictures, one after another, that had no provenance? As one armory show followed another, Anne believed that her paintings were acquiring provenance by simply being exhibited. Dealers found that absurd. Bullshit that it's a building block toward authentication, one dealer snorted. She kept trotting out this shit at the armory shows. I saw the Barnett Newman there, the Rothko there, the Pollock there. All were fake, the dealer muttered to his colleagues. Yet Anne seemed oblivious to their inauthenticity. The dealer said, if you don't have an eye and you don't have the ability to discern differences in an artist's work, you're lost. I don't care how much secondary research you do. Anne left those armory shows with a sense of exultation. Her masterpieces had survived another gauntlet. A few of her rival dealers even threw her a word of affirmation. A vague word or two, but enough for Anne to go on. The Levy Pollock declared all but fake by Ifar had incensed Anne. Worse, it had jeopardized the business she'd worked so hard to keep afloat. The Nodler needed a miracle. Magically, Glafira would conjure up a Jackson Pollock painting so brilliant that no one would cast doubt on its authenticity. One that would ultimately command the highest price ever paid for a work emerging from Peishen Kwan's garage in Queens. It must have been January 2020, and he started talking to me about the Nodler case. He was wearing a tuxedo, so was I. It was a big formal wedding. And I said, well, somebody told me that Pierre Lagrange was a really stupid person. I said, I think that buying a painting from Ann Friedman, he must be a real dumb shit. He got screwed for $17 million, and he looked at me and he said, I'm Pierre Lagrange. <laughs> the $17 million Jackson Pollock. That's next time on Art Fraud. Love laughs at a king. Kings don't mean a thing. On the street of dreams. Dreams broken in two. Can be made like new.
on the street of dreams. Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.